time for Lickin' On Lending. Welcome, everybody. Good to have you with us. Welcome to Lickin' On Lending, a weekly mortgage market update providing up-to-the-minute information on interest rates, loan programs, and hot industry news, all related to the mortgage industry. Brought to you by Transformational Mortgage Solutions. To participate in today's program, our guest call in line is 646-716-4972. Now here's your host of Lickin' On Lending, David Lickin'. Let's begin. Welcome, everybody. It is Monday, July 6, 2020. It's amazing how fast time does travel here. Sorry for my computer. I got a new computer over the weekend, a new Mac Mini, but I forgot to mute out the background sound, so I apologize for that. We've got to do something about those notifications, so we'll have to endure that a little bit. But it's good to have you with us. Hope you had a great 4th of July. Again, this podcast is created by mortgage professionals. It is for mortgage professionals, and we're thrilled to have you as our listener. Our commitment is to bring you timely information in an audio format that you can listen to anytime and anywhere. Yeah, it's got a great hot topic. We've had a whole series of hot topics. So many of you are writing us, hey, have you thought about this? Have you thought about that? Please keep those coming. We have got a backup. In fact, so many hot topic segments are being requested of us that we are now at the point where we're starting to launch midweek hot topic segments. So we're going to start seeing more content come out of the program. It's because we have so much to cover and there's such great stuff. Last week's hot topic segment was amazing. The digital human, if you did not listen to that, go back and do so. That was on Monday. Then on Tuesday, I actually sat down and met with Danny and the team there at the digital human at Unique and I was blown away. What they have, it's here, folks. The future is here. We've seen it. How you can reduce costs, how you can multiply the skills of your people, how you can answer so many routine calls. So there's just so much potential. Just make phone calls to them. We got the links and all the contact information on our website. If you want to get a personal introduction, I'll be happy to do so. Get a hold of me. Text me at 512-632-2900. So last week was just a real hit. And this week we've got Rajesh Bhatt, and he is a CEO and co-founder of Roostify. He's responsible for establishing and executing the vision at Roostify. They've got some very exciting stuff, and they are delivering on their promise called Reinventing Lending. And you have to go listen to the Hot Topic segment. We're proud to be a part of the Industry Syndicate. Check out industrysyndicate.com. Also proud to be a part of the mortgagemedia.com. Paying a bigger role in that all the time. I want to give you encourage to check out Accelerate has a webinar coming up on July 7th this week. We'll talk more about that in just a minute, but I say a special thank you to our sponsors, Mortgage Bankers Association of America, Finastra, as well as our friends at Lenders One, the Mortgage Collaborative, as well as the CMLA, Community Mortgage Lenders of America, as well as Indicom. Again, we talked about Incelerate. They have a webinar coming up that you're going to want to listen to. It has to do with how to retain a customer for life through modern automation. We've got tools for us now that are just unusual. The webinar you can register for it is July 7th at 10 a.m. Pacific Standard Time. Did you the statistics show that the average consumer will obtain 7 to 11 mortgage loans over the course of their lifetime? What are you doing to make sure you're at least a 7 of 11 or all 11? Whatever number they have, you should be the one. Get the customers for life, something I've always believed in. I had some of the best repeat customer business in the industry when I was out there originating loans. There's no reason you can't. So check out Accelerate. Also, a special notification goes out to Ainsworth Advisors. Grateful to have them. Check out their website. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and Jenny May are now looking more and more. Who is influencing you? Who sits and advises you? 
and it's no longer operating by the seat of your pants. We've been an industry which has been often more of a cowboy industry. We run by seat of the pants. Those that are talented originators get out, they grow, they make money, they start companies. That's all great. But who are you getting insights from? Who are you getting advice from? That's what Ainsworth Advisors is about. Check them out. Also, AI Assist. Artificial intelligence, folks, is just becoming a bigger and bigger part of what we're doing. That's, again, part of what the digital human is about, tied with artificial intelligence. Amazing stuff. As well as Celebrity Home Loans. I want to say a special thank you to them as a sponsor. Knowledge Coop, great learning management system, as well as Mobility RE and Modex. Both of these companies help you recruit the right loan officers for your company in the market. Amazing. Check out both of those companies, Mobility, RE, and Modex on our website, as well as Velma, which stands for Virtual Electronic Marketing Assistant. Great tool and technology there, as well as VendorSurf, Vidyard. And finally, a special thank you to Alice, Andy, Alan, and Matt for their contributions to the podcast each and every week. Let's get over to Rob Van Rapphorst with this week's MBA Mortgage Minute. Rob? Hi, I'm Rob Van Rapports. Welcome to the Mortgage Minute and the latest news from the Mortgage Bankers Association. Last week, MBA released the results of its latest forbearance and call volume survey, which estimated that the shares of loans in forbearance fell by one basis point to 8.47% in the week ending on June 21st, 2020. The share of Ginnie Mae-backed loans in forbearance remained at 11.83%, while the share of GSE-backed loans in forbearance declined for the third consecutive week to 6.26%. Also last week, Senators Rob Portman and Ben Cardin introduced the Neighborhood Home Investment Act, a bill that would create a new federal tax credit to fuel development. This bipartisan legislation, a key long-term priority among MBA's overall advocacy effort, would encourage the rehabilitation of single-family homes and potentially attract $100 billion in development activity to underserved rural and urban communities across the country. That's it for this week. Thanks for joining me. Thanks, Rob. Appreciate it very much. Also, while you're at the MBA website, be sure to sign up for the Mortgage Action Alliance. It's a powerful way to have your voice heard. You get the app, download it on your smartphone. You can do it through the App Store and your Apple device. And then sign up, you get the notifications. All you do is click some buttons, folks, and say, I agree, I agree. And the initiatives that they're working on and hit send, a letter automatically goes out from your name, your address to the respective representatives that are in the various branches of government. So it's a very effective tool. Check out Mortgage Action Alliance. Let's get over to Les Parker, and he and Gary Canterbone have dreamed up another great segment. I love how this one is. I listened to it last night. It's a great one, good music parody, and an excellent view on this market. So without further ado, Les with the TM Spotlight. Les? TM Spotlight Soundbite is brought to you by Power Seller, making hedging easy. What do you do when you get weary? And nobody wants to buy your side been running and trading much too long with just your foolish pride. Lay low. Before the self-induced economic coma, there was little hope for inflation to exceed 2%. Now, hope is less. Or is it? After six years of repair and a year of creeping, is gold ready to leap? Is it rising out of fear of inflation or dread of the major central banks devaluing money? Expect U.S. rates to bounce around wildly to establish a bottom to the 30-year secular bull market. Lay low. Wants to ease your wearied mind. These views are my own. Go to tmspotlight.com to subscribe to my daily newsletter. Yeah, I encourage you to do. Check out the TM Spotlight uh, newsletter. Got a lot of great information in there. 
And also, Les has a product that's out there regarding the uh, PPP loan. If you've got a loan and you're thinking whether or not you should keep it or send it back, many have kept the money. And my concern is that they've done so at their own peril. I think you need to get advice on whether or not to keep your money. And I think they're at risk because when we get past this crisis, I think we're going to see the federal government, especially the Treasury, coming back saying, let's go figure out if you really needed that money. And so Les has got a product where he's put together a review, be able to advise you whether or not you should return the money before the penalty time. In fact, I think that we're past that point, but I'm sure there's grace and mercy in there. So get a hold of Les Parker at, for many, many reasons. That PPP loan is one that could come back and bite you if you took it and kept it and did need it, and they determined that, not good. Anyway, we don't need any more attention from the regulators any way you look at it. Matt Graham's here, founder and CEO of MBS Live, who is our new contributor to the podcast with this week's weekly update on what's going on in the market. Be sure to check out mbslive.net. It's a platform with a real-time market data and analytics. It's one I'm using constantly, folks. I have just loving what you have done, Matt. Good to have you here, friend. What you got? What's the economic data? What's going to move us this week? This week is going to be a little bit different than last week. Last week was a short one due to the holiday, half day on Thursday, and then Friday was fully closed. But it was nonetheless interesting for a couple of reasons. Uh, First off, let's talk about economic data, because that is the thing that tends to move bond markets and thus interest rates more than anything. And if you ask most market watchers what economic report rules them all in terms of moving the bond market, over the years, nothing moves bond markets more than quote unquote NFP, which is the abbreviation for non-farm payrolls. And last week, it didn't do anything, even though it came in at the highest number ever and probably will never see a number that high again. And it completely crushed the expectations. And it is somewhat astonishing from a historical standpoint to see that have no effect. And it serves as a potent reminder as to the fact that we have other things on our mind. Coronavirus numbers, as you're well aware in Texas, and a lot of nuance to those as far as hospitalizations versus deaths versus positive case count percentages. There are a lot of different ways to dissect the data, and the bond market is very interested in that right now. And because there are mixed messages and because we don't really know what way things are going, bonds are staying very, very flat. They did take last week to sort of come back to slightly higher yields, but that wasn't really of any concern to the mortgage market because we still have a little bit of a cushion between where the mortgage bond market was and where treasuries were. And that allowed mortgage rates to move down to another all-time low last week, even if only by a little bit. And that helped reinforce that the market isn't looking where it normally looks for guidance. The other thing to consider is that economic data is going to continue to come out that is going to be much stronger than expected simply because it has a reference point from the past few months, which have been terrible. April especially, May is better, June will be better. And we're going to see big numbers there, and we're going to continue to see not as much reaction in the data. We also have the Fed, obviously, as Les's segment brought to light. They want rates to lay low, and they're doing a very good job of supporting that by buying a ton of treasuries and mortgage-backed securities and reiterating that commitment, both in recent congressional testimonies and last week's minute. One thing that's going to come up and that has come up is this concept of yield curve control. 
And that just means that the Fed market is considering the possibility that the Fed may do more than simply focus on overnight lending rates, the Fed funds rate, which is the only thing they truly set in stone. Now, they influence other rates based on their bond buying, but if they implement a yield curve control policy, they will effectively be saying, we're going to buy whatever it takes to keep rates, not just short-term rates, but also intermediate rates at a level that we decide. That would be unprecedented and it would likely have additional benefits for longer term rates, which are already extremely low. So with the uh, coronavirus uncertainty, with the Fed in play, and with the caveats that go hand in hand with the economic data, bond markets haven't had much reason to do anything dramatic, to move very much from a very low and sideways range. And this week, from a data standpoint, it's more of a placeholder. There's really nothing big on tap, no big speeches on tap from Fed officials. It is sort of the start of a time frame that has historically been pretty uneventful for the bond market. And unless you go back to 2013, it's going to be coronavirus news, really. Any big updates there? People are looking to see how that is going to change. And that's not going to be something that can be decided in a day. And once it seems like that is taking shape, then rates will have their guidance. That's going to be a tough one to reconcile for we're going to keep short-term rates low for two years. Basically, they've used that number. So if the economy is able to bounce back better than expected, then they might have to reconsider. And that was when you could see some significant volatility in rates. But right now, volatility is really low. And that's great when rates are super low. But at what cost, I think, continues to be... That's a big question on everyone's minds. That is the big question. I think interest rates are so low and they're going to stay low. This is going to be the best of times for the next, I mean, 2020, 2021. I mean, any idea? What are you reading out there, Matt, as relates to the future or how far out we're going to anticipate keeping these rates at these levels? Any thoughts? I think it's entirely dependent on, on the COVID thing. But the bigger question there is, not so much tying it directly to COVID, but what percentage of these job losses are permanent? And if you look at the you know overall level of destruction to the amount of employment in the country, even after COVID is more or less contained or to whatever extent it can be, we're anticipating and what I'm reading and what I'm seeing is there's still going to be so many people that remain out of work because of yeah. changes that took place because of this and because of things that went out of business. And maybe it's a little bit of a pessimistic outlook, but to some extent, it is going to be the case. And that aside, I mean, we're looking at least through 2020 and probably into 2021, unless the, some vaccine is miraculous. It's always been about the vaccine. Even in late February, early March on MBS Live, we were talking about post-vaccine, pre-vaccine. And once the vaccine is understood and see how well it works, that is things would really start moving. Yeah, so many people say this isn't real. And we have some friends up in Dallas. And they said, we need to go get tested. They got some more testing. So they got online at one of these places and they watched people. They came down the row of cars. There was four rows of cars, uh, lines going in for this testing. And they went in and they captured their name, their address, and basic information. Anyway, they were in, land, they were in line and it took forever to get through this line. It was just moving slow, slow. But two of them said, I had to leave. And they're both in there and they both pulled out of the line and drove away. Guess what? They never did take the test, but guess what they got in the mail? 
your test came back positive. Oh, my God. Which calls attention to, is it accidental? There's just so much going through the system. We don't know. The bottom line is, can't wait to get past this. The best thing is get a vaccine out there. I don't think anybody's having a great time right now. No, yeah, exactly right. All right. So good to have you here with us, Matt. Appreciate you. As always, I love your site. Go check it out at mbslive.net. And if you go into the subscribe sign and put LOL for Lick It On Lending, you get double the time to give this a try. And hopefully this is going to get you a lot of new subscribers. Thrilled to have you here. You do a great job each and every week. Have a great week. You bet. Yep. So glad to have our friend Matt with us. Uh, check out their website. We've got Alice Alvey here. Alice, how are you doing? Did you have a good 4th of July? I did. Thanks, Dave. We had a good time out fishing and kayaking, so it was a great weekend. We had great weather. Oh, kayaking. Fishing and kayaking. Imagine that. Anyway. Yeah, it was lots of fun. So anyway, so for today, for our legislative report, I want to catch up on a couple things. First of all, I would love to get your thoughts and Andy's thoughts on this, too. We heard the Supreme Court uh, ruling that the ability of the president to have some kind of authority over the head of that department, because the way it exists today, the head of the CFPB is confirmed by the Senate and could only be fired for malfeasance, inefficiency, or neglect of duty. The entity that was also being examined by the CFPB that was arguing this case all the way up to the Supreme Court felt that, you know, there was too much power in that position. So that's the aspect that the Supreme Court said that should be in place, that they struck down that it could be added that for cause, the president could remove that individual. So essentially that means if the president, you know, chooses to it and it will, right, there's not a lot that has to be uh, proven there. But Kathleen Craniger has been appointed by President Trump. So if we don't expect any disruption there. She'll be in place. And if in the election there's a changeover, then that's what we would have to be watching out for as if there was a change. So that's the one piece. They did not basically strike down all of the regulations. So in one sense, I kind of look at that as good news because that would be just so much disruption (laughs) to go back and reprogram everything. I mean, there's things we don't like about it, but at least we have systems in place to accommodate it today. So I just wanted to throw that out there for folks in case they weren't sure kind of what did that really mean and was there really a big impact? So today it's business as usual. We'll see what happens after the election as far as the CFPB is concerned. Uh, The second piece is the proposed rule for changing the definition of a qualified mortgage. Now, for those of you today who are on the origination side, your headache is that you're dealing with a maximum 43 DTI unless there's a lot of compensating factors. And for our community bank and credit union partners out there, you're dealing with trying to understand what is a rebuttable presumption, what kind of underwriting and criteria and documentation can I have for my portfolio lending to still make sure I've documented that my borrower has the ability to repay. You can think of the DTI as basically our cap, right? That gives us a feeling of when we've kind of crossed over into new proposed rule. If they do away with the DTI and change it to an APR ceiling, that changes the ability to where is your pricing, right? How high uh, you might have you might have some more pricing challenges. It might inhibit the non-QM market because they knew where they were before, but now there's more in play as far as this pricing ceiling. I think we still would have to have ATR standards. What does it mean? How do you define ability to repay? So I think. In the proposal, they're leaving a lot on the table for the industry to respond to what are the consequences for that type of a change. And that's my heads up to everybody on this call. Everyone in the industry, this is huge. 
You should be responding. The response date is going to be about August 21st. I have to go double check exactly our 60-day mark, but it'll be around that third week in August. And you've really got to think through what are the consequences if now I have two layers of Mm -hmm. rate issues and APOR, APR issues that I have to manage to manage my risks at the company. And I think we're still documenting income. That's not going away. But is that better or worse than dealing with a, a DTI that I can manage that's reasonable and gives me a lot of room above that to define reasonable? So what are you guys doing there? What are, what's the path you're taking there at Union Home? Well, we're just working through looking at this and collecting our comments and thoughts. And I think that's really, as a group, we, we always do things with lots of uh, really smart people in the room to come up with some solutions. And I think that's really where we're starting. We want to make sure we don't miss something. So the MBA put out an early summary of it on June 22nd. You should read that. It gives you just kind of the high point. I think that next layer that we're looking at is if we go to something along this line, what are the consequences? What are the changes? We have to have an extension of the GSE patch because if they change the computer programming, that's not happening by June 21st. So we're glad that's written into this proposed rule. Uh, but that's what we're doing right now. We're making sure we understand what are the potential consequences and, and what's the right thing for the industry. Now, so here, listeners, let us know what you're doing, what your company's doing. Get us feedback. Go on. LinkedIn seems to be a big popular way we hear from a lot of people. Connect with me there or send me a text at 512-632-2900 or get a hold of Alice. And love to get thoughts uh, from everybody else. Yeah. Andy, have you had a chance to take a deep dive into this yet? Well, hi, Alice. If if you don't mind, Dave, we jump in real quick. The the thing about the the DTI is is that a very high-income person can have a very high DTI and still have plenty of money left to make a reasonable house payment. The thing about the APR, APOR spread is that when you have low-level price adjusters that cause the rate to go up, it means the APOR, APR spread's narrower. So if you've got a person with lots of low-level price adjusters, you want the DTI to be lower. So the idea of looking at APR spreads as an indicator of DTI max level, I think, makes some sense. It's just that the devil's in the details. Working theoretically, there's some sense behind this. It's just about how to make it all make sense so that the lower income DTIs can't be 60%. It's got to still make some sense. In fact, lower income DTIs should probably be 30 but lots to consider. I've been a big fan of the residual income approach, the VA approach underwriting for a long, long yes, time. Exactly. I think we're, we're having some conversations going with Fannie Mae. I have one more yeah. thought on that. This has come up yeah. time and again on the website over the years with the APOR calculation yeah. running off the Freddie Mac's weekly numbers. And there have been times where rates have moved enough in the space of a couple of days where people are getting shut out of the possibility to get a loan because Freddie Mac is weekly data that is based on Monday and Tuesday, largely, uh, the way they do their survey. And so the DTI thing would be beneficial in that sense, too, because it would get around that lag in their mortgage rate reporting. The good news is people want to hear from everybody. That's interesting, Matt. I've been looking at your message board, and it's a great place for people to put up thoughts and reflections on what their thoughts are. I'm getting some feedback from several of our listeners that are listening live right now, and the answer is no one has given us any direction at this point. Everyone that we're working with seems to be in, we're in a wait-and-see mode. They're trying to figure it out. That's great. Alice touched on it. Thank you so much. Please let us know what others are doing. We'll collect some information, and we'll keep reporting on it uh, while the comment period is open. The yeah, MBA- 
okay. A lot of times we'll nudge them to post early, but very often they're so busy, they have to spend a lot of time collecting information from the membership, and it takes them yeah. a while to put together their response. So, yeah, we'll keep reporting. If you could put, post that a question up in your uh, MBS live chat section, that's good to see what others are doing out there. That'd be great. Something that ties your audience in with what we're talking about on here. That'd be great. Appreciate it. All right, Alice, good job. Alice is Vice President of Education Training at Union Home Mortgage. She's a master CMB, and good to have her here each week with the legislative update. Alice, thank you so much. Appreciate it. You're welcome. Let's get over to Alan Pollack, sponsored by Finastra. Before we get into Alan, I want to talk about some of the tools that Finastra has. Again, they got the FusionBot mortgage system and the ability to some of the technology that they have for driving. But here's the most important part. They've just done a new release of some new parts of their technology. I encourage you to go check out Fusion Mortgage Bot and take a look at what they're doing there as well as on their point of sale side. They've got some great tools and it's being used by over 1,400 bank clients right now and credit unions finding about it. So you're learning about a system. Go check it out. Alan Pollock, good to have you here with us. We should also say you're with Open Close, another excellent system that's out there. So it's good to have you here, Alan. What you got? Thanks for mentioning. Great to be here as always. I did put a post out on LinkedIn that just mentioned for all of our technology vendor friends, if you have news that you'd like to have mentioned, feel free to send me a message. I did get one or two already from the post, but feel free to, uh, to shoot me a message. So David, uh, happy 4th, first of all, to everybody. We've made it now halfway through 2020. And once you get halfway, there's no reason to turn back, right? And I think we can all agree this year, nobody wants to turn back. So let's just uh, stick through it. Move forward. I heard what you said earlier about the testing. It's just crazy. Uh, you probably heard in the news, Florida had something where there was 30,000 or so, I think it was more west coast of Florida, but the results that were incorrect. Yeah. So, it's a stressful time and we'll make it through. So, in the middle of mortgage industry and the coronavirus, this great website you may want to check out. It's called Board Panda. And uh, I found this one post. It's called People Are Sharing Pictures of the Worst Software Fails They've Ever Encountered, and They're Hilarious. And I've got some good ones here. And you, you definitely want to check this out. Anyone that's been part of testing new software or for our vendor friends coding new software, this will resonate really well. First one is I got a coupon for 30% off Bluetooth headphones that end up being 98% when I entered the code, right? So obviously testing didn't go too well on that one. This one was, the title was in all capitals, how with a big question mark, and it said task failed successfully. So when you get those, those error messages that don't always match the right message, that was one. Another one was uh, could not copy files because no and no is in all capitals. And this one was great. I'll end it on this one. My, I was driving, and my phone vibrated in my pocket to tell me, you will not receive notifications while you're driving. So there's about 50 of these. They're pretty funny. Some come with screenshots, so check them out. People are sharing pics of the worst software fails they've encountered. So funny. lots of great stuff in the news, David. One is Fannie Mae does a lot of great surveys. They just recently did one about COVID-19, asking lenders to name the biggest challenges. And there's the things that we would expect in there, transparency in the secondary markets, forbearance, workflows, stuff like that. But one of the things that continued, and every year we talk about Fannie Mae survey, right now they're asking lenders their top business priorities as well. And of course, what came out on top is streamlining the operational process across the board, but also focusing on the borrower's point of sale experience. So we've made investments there. We continue to make investments there. And honestly, David, I've, I've been telling people, and maybe hopefully a lot, of, a lot of our listeners are shaking their head up and down, yes, as I say this, we thought we were maybe in a position where we can start to lower some of our costs because we've selected the right vendors and technology. I think the reality is we need to go reinvest more costs. So thinking of saving money may be kind of hard right now. 
Andy, you probably have a good breakdown of how that goes, but as far as mitigating um, compliance and risk, which I'm going to bring up in a moment, and then having to deal with continuing to really set that and manage that borrower's expectation is really critical and important. So let's continue to think about that. Uh, Simple Nexus has a great announcement. They just continue to pop announcements out, David. And this one I saw, which I thought was interesting, allowing to lock loans from a mobile device, which I think is really important, right? Being on the go, being able to provide that customer experience as a loan officer, that real-time experience is really important. So Simple Nexus, that's a great update. Housing Wire, David, always puts out great stuff to them. Uh, Their housing tech rundown, I noticed a couple things in their most recent one. This one is there's a property tech provider. I've never heard of them, but I I did some research. Really interesting company called Aspen Grove Solutions. They Hmm. just released what they call their homeowner forbearance module, which basically helps servicers that work with their borrowers. They can reapply for the forbearance process. It takes them through the entire application process. Super efficient. There's probably a lot more technology to come in that area. But if you're servicing your own loans or you're a technology partner that can get involved, you may want to take a look at Aspen. thought that was pretty cool. Also, David, CoreLogic, you know, remember last week we talked about the fact that their stock was all but not as well as certain investors were hoping, right? So anyways, they just came out with a brand new platform. They call it the Real Estate Platform One Home, which the intention is to create a collaborative platform during the whole entire home buying experience between agents and their clients. And that ties in with property valuations, a virtual marketplace, being able to get insurance, and then, of course, CoreLogic integrates this with all of your point-of-sale solutions. So if you're looking to do something a little bit different, you have your own tech team or you're pushing your vendors to do something, you may want to check out CoreLogic's new One Home platform. A lot of the lenders out there, especially some that I've specifically talked to, take on some of their own tech projects. Uh, They've got their own dev team, so One Home could be a good fit for you. This is another great one, David. I love success stories. So Giza Credit Union, G-E-S-A, they're the second largest credit union in Washington State. Uh, and they just completed a project with a consulting firm. The name was Digital Gain. They focused on business process strategy, how to really you know, be more operational efficient with their technology and removing bottlenecks, a lot of the things that TMS Advisors does, right, things that you focus on all the time. Anyways, they were able to automate over 60% of their operational process using digital assistance, and it's supporting all the different aspects from application to closing. So you want to check it out. There's a great article about it. It's Giza, G-E-S-A, Credit Union, and they're in Washington State. And this was interesting, David. There was an article on the folks over at MQMR. We never really talked much about them, but they bring up a great topic, which I wanted to end with today, called vendor management. And it talks about tech strategies must include sound vendor management. And it's just so, so important. When you deal with things like compliance, cybersecurity, cloud risk, because everybody's in the cloud today, loan transactional risk, think about origination and secondary, operational risk to your business, and even business continuity, right? You do a check on your vendors when they first come through the door, but do you check on your vendors throughout the process? And the cost of vendor management is just so absolutely high. Mm-hmm. It's even worse when you're in that dire time of need. Systems are going down. Your customers are actually saying that you're having a bad experience, right? We're all in the game of 
competing on service, right, and quality. And the last thing we need is to have outages and down systems and awful bad experiences. And it's happened. So really where I'm going with this today is the CFPB has outlined a vendor due diligence guideline to follow. There are some vendors out there as well that provide vendor management services, but I know a lot of us don't use them and you don't have to. But the goal here is to continue to figure out what is your strategy and what do you need to make sure of with that vendor track and manage that, especially based on data security risk, the ability to prevent fraud, and then, of course, business continuity. So if you can manage those things and you can do that ongoing and there's strategies on how to do that, you'll be in a much better position making sure that you don't have any oops that can cost you dearly. With that, David, I'm looking forward to the second half of our podcast today and have a great week, everybody. Thank you, Alan. Appreciate it very much. Good to have you here, friend. Andy Shell, the Prophet Doctor. Dr. Andy Shell, the Prophet Doctor. Dr. Doctor is here. Andy, good to have you here with us. Hi, Dave. Good afternoon. Yes. Always nice to hear your voice. Also, I should introduce you as my sponsor for my CMB that's coming up here. So anyway. I'm talking about servicing. So happy 4th. Happy 4th of July. So we saw lots of activity on TV. We're experiencing lots of activity with mortgage lending. And we always want to automate mortgage lending activity to the extent that we can. That's part of what your special guest does later today with Roostify. But mortgage lending is more than just the application. It's more than just talking to the customer and getting them a closed loan. Mortgage lending, that one of the biggest parts of mortgage lending is mortgage servicing. And so with mortgage servicing, we're touching the customer every single month. With every mortgage, every single mortgage that's originated, we're going to collect a payment from the customer every single month for the life of the loan. And when you think about this, it's actually a surprising big quantity of customers who send in a payment. So even though you have a really sophisticated servicing portfolio with only, say, 10% customers sending in checks, which is actually kind of low, but if you have 200,000 loans, which a good size portfolio is not a gargantuan portfolio, that's 20,000 pieces of mail that come in every single month the servicer has to process. Just think about the magnitude of that. That is a lot of paper cuts, opening those envelopes, pulling out the check. What happens if they send in a cash? That happens too, believe it or not. Now, while a lot of folks do pay online, but the servicer provides that actually generates an ACH, sometimes the customer directly goes into their bank and generates a payment. So one is actually better than the other, but it's still, all these payments have to get processed. And and within every single payment, it's not just about getting the payment, you've got to uh, analyze the payment. And within every single payment, there's interest and principal that's going to mostly go to the investor, but there's also escrow for taxes and insurance as part of that payment that has to get segregated and moved over because it's got to be held a certain way. And then part of the interest that's collected is going to go to the investor. Part of it, the servicer keeps as a fee for servicing the loan. And and part of the interest that's collected goes to the investor, but the investor keeps it and doesn't remit it to the MBS holder because that's part of the risk of default fee. And all this happens on every single payment. And and what if the payment's not made? What if the check's in NSF? What if the ACH rejects, which sometimes happens when you use online systems that aren't originated by your bank. Your bank knows what your balance is, but some other systems may not. Here's the crazy part. So right now today in times of high refi, well, what's happening every time you have a refinance for a servicer, the loan is paid off. What happens when you pay off a loan? Well, you have to call it a deconversion. So you take the loan off 
You also then have to file a lien release because you have to release the lien wherever it's filed. You have to send the paperwork through to get all of that done. And then every time it's refinanced, what else happens? A brand new loan comes in and has to get boarded into the servicing system. That means loaded into the system. And when you put data into something, you need to make sure it's right. So there's a data validation process that has to happen. And also the originating entity may not have calculated the mortgage escrow amounts correctly. So the servicer has to now recheck all the escrow accounts amounts for every single one of the new loans that come in. And this is happening at a thousand miles an hour. There is so much that happens. So Teresa and I have a webinar we're teaching coming up in a couple of weeks through the MBA about this. Now, the, the webinar is not specifically focused on COVID and CARES. It's not just the forbearance. We're going to talk about the broad requirements of forbearance, but not specifically the uh, CARES Act forbearance. But that's coming up. If you want to learn more about servicing big picture, servicing subservicing, and the functions of servicing, what everybody does and how they do it generally, join the webinar. If you're a member of the Mortgage Bankers Association, how much the webinar cost? It costs nothing. Three if you are an MBA member. So yep. come join the webinar. One question that just came in to anyone that brought up servicing. Are the economics at this point in such a way where you should retain servicing? Yes. For, for a couple of reasons, provided you have the capability to service and the market stays where it is, where the MSR value is so low, and you're able to actually extract enough cash flow from the premium and the coupon to cover your operating costs. So okay. that moves around. We had a little bit of an aberration. I think generally, yes. And I think the, your prepayment speeds of the files that are coming in. I mean, I remember when 10% was a great rate. I remember when 8% was a great rate. How much <laughs> lower can it go? Comfortable that it really the spread between the 10-year and the mortgage has to stabilize and mortgage rates can't go below two-ish, then your portfolio would never refinance for the portfolio you buy today. Right. That's a much bigger question, Dave, and it's really interesting. It is. It's really interesting. There comes to a point where companies are, more and more companies are retaining servicing right now in this market. It's a great time. I thought the rates are at the low. When do you pick the low? You don't. Just get in and have a good production machine. But more and more companies I hear that are of the certain size and have the discipline and the experience are retaining servicing. It's a great time to be doing so. Anyway. Yep, exactly. Good job, Dr. Shell. Good to have you here with us each and every week. Appreciate you. Folks, that ends this week's weekly update. And if you want to continue listening, if you're listening live, then just stay right here. We're going to get into the hot topic segment next. If you're listening on a downloaded basis, you can just stay right on. It should load up and continue right in into the hot topic. And very excited about that. Without further ado, let's get into the hot topic for this week. Folks, I'm excited to have Rajesh Bhatt here with us. He's the co-founder and CEO of Roostify, a name we all know and have seen all over the industry. And we're really wanting to talk about what is going on in the industry. I love talking to innovative people, and Rajesh is definitely one of those. Anyway, Rajesh, good to have you here, friend. Great to be here. And it's always a pleasure to talk to someone who is committed to innovation, reinventing our industry. We badly need it. I've been in this industry for 47 years. We've been begging for that. Joining me on the interview is my good friend, Alan Pollock. Alan, good to have you here. Great to be here. Anytime we talk innovation, Alan Pollock's got to be in the conversation. He is one of the more innovative people. So, Rajesh, I want to talk about this. You have really built a pretty significant team. And how do you, in these kind of times... Keep a team motivated, always interested in leadership. So let's start there. It's definitely been a crazy time over the past few months. And the pandemic came on. We recognized that things were changing and we were going to need to just change the way we worked as a team. And so one of the things we did is just 
you know, really stay true to our values. And those are inspiring trust and putting people first and acting decisively, dreaming big and owning it. And everything we did, we put through that lens. We certainly wanted to put people first as we saw what was happening just in the, the overall economy. And we stepped up the communication. So we previously had done a, a monthly all-hands meeting, and so we stepped that up to a weekly a cadence. As we all moved into our homes and sheltered in place, I set up twice a week CEO drop-ins where anyone could just drop in with me. It, it's a great point, though. With our customers, though, we definitely stepped up the communication as well. I personally reached out to the executives that I typically interface with on our customers and just made sure, one, that... We understood what they were going through, what they were prioritizing, and making sure that we could be the best partner as possible in that context. And two, just also let them know that we were there for them as well. Because I think 2020 for us, as I told our team, is the year of the customer. Our first and primary focus is on making sure that our customers are successful and sustained through a really crazy time, particularly in our industry. And so our job became very simplified. We just moved into the concerted pandemic disruption operation, which is just making sure that our customers are successful, taking care of our people, and being as transparent as possible and thinking about how we're navigating through the pandemic. Well, Alan Pollux, who's on the phone with me, I'm going to get him in the conversation. Alan, we've talked about how do you communicate. I'd love to hear about your thoughts and some of the technology and any questions you have for Rajesh. Yeah, Rajesh, first, great to have you on the program and good to talk to you as well. We're innovators, right? You've innovated an amazing technology platform and you've got a great following and you're doing really well. What do you think this pandemic and sort of the state of our industry and how your customers are responding help you pave the way for more innovation moving forward? What's happened with the pandemic is it's accelerated a lot of initiatives that would otherwise have been more experimental, particularly around e-closing and, and notarization that are a lot more complex to adopt. We provide a capability that allows the consumer to perform application intake and document intake with the bank and, and to bring in third parties as well to collaborate through the closing to perform fulfillment activities and for the bank to perform decisioning activities. But as we have worked with our customers around e-closing and notarization, there's always been intrigue in these capabilities and proofs of concept. But very quickly, for many of our customers, including large banks, this became a business imperative for them to figure out how to deploy these capabilities at scale. I, I think the longer we've been sheltering in place, the more clear it has been that this is going to be something that we're going to figure out how to scale very quickly and to deploy nationwide. And the collective will is now there and the necessity is there. These digital capabilities that had previously been more of a channel type of operation are now becoming a business continuity imperative for the industry. So what that's meant for us is we've seen a huge spike in volume, obviously due to the rates, but also due to more capabilities moving into our solution from our platform, from other systems, and then more users coming in. Our customers have moved people out of the call centers and out of the branches into their home settings and found the need to have to engage digitally in order to get business done. The interesting thing has been the productivity has either stayed on par or actually increased for many of our customers, which tells us all that the way people go back to work after the dust settles and all this is going to be very different than the work setting that they left when we entered into the pandemic. Oh, absolutely. One thing you said that I think is really important is the pace of change and accelerated initiatives. The pace of change is driven by the industry and it's also driven by our clients, right? We don't want to build stuff that they can't adopt or that's not ready for the market. And looking at a lot of the stuff that you guys have done, you have one relationship that I've talked about on the Lickin' on Lending podcast quite a bit. 
which is your TV bank relationship. And I think that's really important. It adds a different flavor to everything you're doing for the independent market, for independent mortgage bankers, as well as other banks and credit unions. And I also come from a background of online banking and mortgage origination. And so I think the experience and the pace of change, some of the things that you're seeing from a consumer's point of view through online banking and the way that TD Bank is asking you to customize your application and build innovation really gives you a very interesting intersection for digital breakthrough to the rest of the market. On that same topic of digital breakthrough, I thought I'd maybe ask you about that. TD is awesome. They're obviously very focused on very sophisticated digital capabilities for the customers. Their motto is unexpectedly human, which is really challenging the norms of the banking experience. I think the way we partner with them, similar to many of other customers, is to really align roadmaps. We have a a roadmap that's born out of our own vision and our understanding of what our North Star, if you want, of enabling a consumer to manage the entire lending experience in a single place and to be able to have maximum transparency and, and predictability in that experience and allowing our customers to benefit from that at the same time. But you made a great point that if you build something for the industry and no one adopts it, then it's all for naught. And we've learned that the hard way in our early days as well. And so pacing with your customers is super important. What gets really exciting is where you show an ability to deliver and then you you've shown ability to scale. And scale is super important in this space because it's one thing to support 20 to 50% of the volume of a bank, but it's a completely different order of complexity and responsibility to be able to support 80 to 100% of the, the bank's volume. And so that's what we do with our customers. And so once you have demonstrated that scale, then the challenge is innovating at scale. And that really is a, a joint challenge between the bank and us. And so with TD, it means a lot of interaction, not just with the working teams, but also at the executive level so that we are really aligning strategically on digital transformation initiatives. And something that we talk about a lot is this concept of a single window for a bank where a consumer can come into a bank and look at home equity offers alongside mortgage offers and have that single digital experience from the point of just looking at offers all the way through the transaction. And this is something that the the CD has been a huge proponent of from day one. And it's alignment at the executive level that helps us drive that sort of conviction into execution. They've got a great recipe for being able to prioritize this sort of transformation across the different teams in the organization. It's not just the digital team, but it's also regulatory compliance. It's information security. It's the business, obviously, and technology. All of them buying into that North Star for their own organization and us aligning with them on it. Their recipe equals the part of your recipe, and I think that's fantastic. And the reason I brought up part of my back history in online banking and mortgages because there is that unique relationship of empathy because you're engaging with a consumer at a different level than just looking for a mortgage. Yeah, so I think that's great that you have that other view. Now, talking about like the future of mortgage lending, you brought up home equity. It's interesting. Somebody asked me the other day, hey, when rates are so low and all these refinances are over, is it only going to be a purchase market? My answer to them is, hey, I'm not a forecaster. I don't know. But I can tell you that I think home equity is going to be a big deal again. And I think the last couple of years, everybody's been counting or trying to bank on home equity. You've obviously gone down that path with home equity. What are some of your thoughts there? To hit on the home equity piece quickly, it has been interesting to see the 
just a home equity activity on our platform. And actually, May, we did our highest month ever in terms of volume, and it's obviously been going through the roof. And the, the majority of it was actually purchase origination. So we're seeing that come back. But then also on top of that, we're seeing this phenomenon of nesting in the United States in light of the pandemic, obviously. And people are spending more time at home. People who had previously been out and their attention drawn to what's outside of their home and out staring at their walls, looking at opportunities to renovate. And so I think that's going to be reflected as well in how people are taking money out of their homes, either through a cash out refi or home equity line of credit or home equity loan to invest back into the home because people are drawing more meaning from their homes today than they were at the beginning of the year. We're bullish on that as well. And so it actually figures into the future as we think about it of just secured lending as a whole. And the ability for a consumer to be able to have a better understanding of what their borrowing power is with a bank is very important. So today, if you are coming into a bank for first-time loan, it takes a while for you to really understand that borrowing power. And in actuality, there's this notion of speed to certainty that is hard to achieve in this industry. There's speed to get to something, but you don't have a high level of certainty as to whether that pre-approval letter is actually something that the bank's going to stand by at the end of the day once they see all of your information. So the ability to effectively shed privacy to improve that certainty needs to be built in in order for the consumer to even have that option. And there is a healthy swath of consumers that will definitely opt into driving to certainty at a faster pace once that sort of experience is available. And so that's definitely one of the concepts that we're executing on this year as we're enabling the piping to be able to allow for real-time decisioning in real time, fully automated uh, approvals that are run through uh, automated underwriting systems. When you have that sort of piping, then you can start to create different types of user journeys and user experiences. Being able to plug into multiple decision engines allows you to be able to take a single credit application and then effectively run it across an entire bank. The different lines of businesses that have been historically siloed uh, and allowing a consumer to see very quickly what their borrowing power is across those different lines of businesses, which today is uh, Today. One of the things you brought up in the future of lending is you're an innovator. You are one of the leading innovators and thought leaders in innovation in our industry. I want to talk about it from this angle. One of the brand promises you make is reinvent lending. I want to get some insights to your vision, what that looks like, and some of the things that we might see in the future, at least get some insights into where you think this is going in the future lending from a technology standpoint. Sure. So I'll talk about it in two respects, hitting on the concept of the single window in more detail. So reinventing lending means moving the whole lending experience closer to the consumer. They're moving from being product-centric to being more consumer-centric with their capabilities and it's driving a, effectively a workforce transformation for them. With that in mind, it means as a consumer, if I go to a bank with, let's say, a $50,000 money out need, then I can look at a cash out refi alongside a home equity loan, alongside potentially a personal loan, and being able to engage directly with the bank across those different lines of businesses in order to have a single lending experience where I'm, I'm able to get the product that's right for my need, depending on how quickly I need the money, how quickly I'm going to pay it back, how I feel about the monthly payment or the interest rate or whether I have assets to bring to bear. And, and this is an experience that, simply put, doesn't exist today because of the way banks are organized and the way that their marketing budgets are deployed and their technology budgets are deployed, et cetera. Being able to provide the consumer that consumer-centric experience is know, something that we feel very strongly about. The yeah. second way I answer the question is in the context of home lending itself. And so we just said about building a solution that we would want to use as consumers for the next time we go through a home purchase. And we're still not there by any stretch of the imagination. But the simple notion yeah. is that as a consumer, I should be able to do everything in one place. I should be able to submit a purchase offer and be able to basically link my mortgage bank to that experience and 
have the information in that purchase contract drive the purchase origination process, because ultimately it does, and then be able to manage the enclosing in that space. We're getting there, but it needs to accelerate. For that to happen, again, it requires a lot more piping. When you're working with really large banks, as we are, a number of some of the largest global banks, you're held to a standard around information security and third-party risk and governance risk and compliance that is very painful at the outset, but it gives you as well the ability to Think about just basically taking the same blueprint and extending it for the industry because that level of confidence that's required by all these different parties to share the sort of information to drive the process for the consumer is very high. And so we believe that we're well positioned just because of that to be able to drive that roadmap with the industry. When you look at the future of mortgage lending and how there's greater connectivity. You're driving a lot of that. Do you see that there are some breaks in that process? What's the time frame for those to get fixed? Or a consumer can go online, take that online application, and then basically hit the submit button, and then for all practical purposes, they're accessing all the database. They're done. What's your thoughts on that? I totally agree with that. And I think that's where, you know, as an industry, where we are, where, to be very blunt about it, there's been proliferation of companies coming to market with very similar capabilities for that upper funnel, if you want, digital experience. But then one of our colleagues applied for a loan with this couple of banks that work with one of our peers, I'll call them. They submitted the applications through this experience, and it was great, maybe 20, 40 minutes or something. And then after that, everything was done via email. And so the hard part is still that post-application collaboration experience, which is where we've been focusing. It is complex because to be able to do that for every single type of loan, every single type of consumer, every single type of type of lender, whether you're in the field or at a bank or in a call center, and being able to handle the different workflows is hard. It's complex. You have to do that in order to be able to drive that full post-application experience. And so that's where we are with our customers is taking the consumer either from the beginning where they're expressing intent to enter into a lending experience, one of our lead forms, through an application into the fulfillment experience where they're in the same digital experience as the loan officer and the team members going through receiving their loan estimate, their initial disclosures, all the way to the point where they're receiving their final closing disclosures. And through it all, having uh, real-time visibility into the progress of the loan. And it's harder But our focus over the last couple of years has been building that capability to scale with our largest paying customers. And now that we're there, we know it's highly differentiated. Yeah, I refinanced my mortgage at the end of late in uh, Q4 of 2019, somewhere around December, I think it was what it was. It was a much better experience than I anticipated. And then I've been in the industry for 47 years. So I refinanced and bought a lot over the years. It was a substantially different experience. And I think you bring up a great point. The thing that was so frustrating to me is started out great, got my conditional approval, and we moved through it. But then everything went back to the old way. And I just want to encourage anyone listening to this podcast that's doing anything in the area of innovation, keep everybody in the same portal having the same experience from beginning to end. As you look at this and we wrap this up, I want to get your thoughts on the forbearance window and kind of just generally what's going on out there, the feds. You have had some great comments I've seen published out there, and I want to share some of those with our listeners. Sure. Regarding forbearance, so I think obviously we're going to see some of these windows start to close Soon, who has requested forbearance and of those that have requested forbearance, 
whether they need it. And I, I think what we've all learned is that there are a number of people who, when the, the issuance came out, they requested forbearance without actually really needing that forbearance and not understanding the implication to their ability to obtain credit. And so a number of people have pulled back on it. Our customers are actually relatively bullish about the prospect of once that forbearance window expires, not having enter into loan modification discussions with a, a significant percentage of those customers. I think the shoe is still yet to drop on this. And a lot of this is tying to the economic outlook, obviously. There's one, the, the current unemployment numbers, but there's two, the ability for companies to start hiring again so that those people whose jobs have been displaced are in a position to find new jobs. And so uh, a lot of the, the work that's being done in Washington is very much informing what's going to happen once the forbearance window closes. And that's what I think we're all watching. I mean, there's an interesting insight that I saw recently about just who's impacted by the, the unemployment numbers. If you look at the working population in the country, roughly 140 million people, We've seen that there's been you know, a, a huge impact, I think, most recently, something you know, like up to 40 million people that have been unemployed. The preponderance of the people that have been unemployed have been people who do not have college degrees and people either who have a high school degree but never went to college or people who went to college but never actually graduated. Those people are, as a percentage of home buyers, a significantly lower percentage than people with college degrees. So 70% of the people with college degrees have own homes, whereas 47% of the people with high school degrees without college degrees own homes. You see there that who's acutely impacted by the unemployment that's arisen during the, the pandemic disruption, what the exposure is then to that population and to the industry. And so it's super important that the regulation that's coming out of Washington, D.C. is really solving for that problem for the working class. And that's so critical for so many reasons, obviously, for what we're seeing in the country with respect to social unrest and civil unrest and a lot of other pieces. But this is another facet of it which is very important for us all to understand and watch. Yeah, this is very good. Any thoughts about the Federal Reserve and their impact on the markets? What do you think? Thoughts there? I, I think their, their commitment to just do whatever it takes is an important signal to the market. The right. concept of capping rate increases, that's the sort of edict that you know, the country hasn't seen for some time. And so at this point, they, there's a lot of speculation as the impact on the psychology of just the money markets with that edict. But clearly, they are going to really focus on just doing what it takes. But we're you know, also very clearly entering into a period of extended just uh, deflation. That is going to have long-term consequences for the country as well that I think it's the, the lesser of the two evils at this point that we're trying to grapple with. And I think everyone will knock wood that just the, the result of that, which oftentimes is inflated assets, asset classes, and even stronger gaps of equality and just wealth between the one end of the spectrum and the other end of the spectrum and everything that causes that is something that we're absolutely going to have to watch as a result of this. So it's not easy to be the Fed at any given time, but at, during this period, they've got a very you know big burden. Chairman Powell. That company have got some real challenges in front of them. Deflation. It's one of the things I've always been a little worried about, especially when we have the debt on us. So these are additional questions I wanted to ask. The first one, we've had a lot of serious conversation. Let me throw a funny one at you. If you had a million-dollar budget, how would you spend it and why? That's a good question. Right now, if you asked me at the beginning of the year, maybe in February, I would have told you to just accelerate our build-out of our AI capabilities, which are coming forward because we, we see that as just an acute need for the industry and it's just really aligned with a better consumer experience. Post-pandemic, I would definitely say accelerating the build-out of the 
e-closing ecosystem as opposed to just for our own service. And that's largely driving towards this defragmentation of a highly fragmented space in order to get it available at scale to consumers and banks and the ecosystem at large. So I'm going to put a twist on the question for you now. You walk out of your office door and you find a lottery ticket that ends up winning $10 million. What do you do? So first off, I tell my wife, I'm not going to use it for us and see how that goes. Right. And then put it back into the business. And yeah, I think the industry requires is just better plumbing as a whole. Right now, we have some legacy players who I, I like to call it, if I look, use a telecom analogy, you used to have fiber lines running between different points of presence around the country, but ultimately the whole experience was throttled because of the copper line, the plain old telephone yep. service that was you know, going from that, that central office into people's homes. And it took ages to overhaul, literally decades. And so we, we have that today. We have legacy institutions and providers out there that are using flat file databases to to drive a significant portion of of this industry. We have technologies that were built in the 1980s, and it slows things down. We need to make that overhaul happen by demanding more from our partners, and they, they need to demand more from us as well. Really accelerate the interconnectivity of the ecosystem. So that $10 million goes to the industry to make that happen. Yeah, I like that. Thank you. Thanks so much, David. I appreciate your support. You rock, dude. You really are good. I appreciate you so much. Alan, anything else? Yeah, I actually would go with something really short, just for a quick second. And it's only because we're doing a bunch of talk about adoption. And Rajesh, what would you tell our lenders that are listening, your customers and your potential customers, on what it really takes to adopt and truly leverage technology like Roostify? Is there a secret formula or a special way that you approach that? That's a great question. Uh, I don't know if it's a secret formula, but it takes a lot of alignment at the executive level to an outcome. It's not just technology you're throwing over the fence. The outcome cannot be, this is an accommodation for loan officers that are asking for this. If that's the goal, then you're, you're always going to be dissatisfied. The preferred outcome that we look for in successful relationships is alignment on a bigger picture vision where you're moving the whole workload to digital. And that's important because having that alignment at the executive level sets the tone for the company. It requires conviction to partner to drive that. And so in order to drive adoption, you have to really incentivize people to adopt the capabilities. And incentives isn't money, it's outcomes. Delivering a better experience for the loan officer, for their team that works behind them, and ultimately for the consumer. And so it takes, in turn, real collaboration between us and our partner, the customer, the bank, to make that happen. Identifying what gaps are as you go from that 20% adoption to 50% adoption to 75% to 100 and And what needs to be built out or configured differently to support it, what communications need to be rolled out to support it. This is not just turning on a capability. We would love to think that this is just a simple SaaS thing where you just turn on a solution and then everyone flocks to it. But we all know that mortgage itself is super idiosyncratic, highly complex, and then To top it off, every single bank does everything differently. And so it takes a deep understanding on our part and then turn on the customer's part that conviction to really work through to achieve those outcomes. Yeah, that's a great response. That was a great question. Thank you so much. It's so good to have you here. appreciate you so much being a part of the podcast and love to have you back, especially as you you see some things developing. Let's make arrangements to get you back on and great thoughts today. I appreciate you being here. Thank you. Folks, we've had as our guest, again, president of Roostify, Rajesh Bhatt, and he's CEO, co-founder of Roostify, responsible for establishing and executing the vision of Roostify. Encourage you to check out their website. Appreciate them uh, and all that they do. I love the innovation that comes from Rajesh and uh, his team. 
Next week, we've got Gwen Muse Evans going to be on talking about leadership. Such a timely topic. She's a leader in the industry. Uh, she has a company by the name of GME Enterprises. Very excited to have her on. Be sure to check out the, the write-up on our website at Licking on Letting for more information. Also, a special thank you goes out to our sponsors, Finastra, as well as Community Mortgage Lenders of America, Indicom, Incelerate. Remember to register for Incelerate's July 7th webinar that's coming up, as well as Ainsworth Advisors, Mobility RE, and Modex, and so many more. Appreciate you so much. Check out all our sponsors at our website, Looking on Lending, under the sponsorship page. Have a great one. Talk to you soon. Thank you so much. Have a great week. been listening to Lickin on Lending, a weekly mortgage market update with your host, David Lickin of Transformational Mortgage Solutions. Join us next week, and thanks for listening.